in a lot of ways, I realized I had been cut off from my black family. And my mom was white, but she tried really hard to make sure that I was around black people. And that's why she sent me to the middle and high school that she did. That's why she raised me in the neighborhood that she did. But I think it's different to just be around black people versus having your black family and being able to see a bit more of your lineage. This book and working on this book has reminded me that I'm always gonna be connected to my ancestors. Even if I'm not seeing these lineages every day in my own life, I know where I come from because I see my curls. Hi everybody, welcome to Start Right Here. We are the podcast that puts the spotlight on the career paths of BIPOC beauty professionals, entrepreneurs, and creatives, as well as issues related to beauty and inclusion impacting us in the industry, as well as impacting consumers. I'm your host, Corinne Corbett, and I hope that conversations on this show help fuel your path to success. Hi, everybody. Today, we're going to talk about beauty and identity and how it's expressed through one's hair. And today we have a guest who's put together a wonderful, wonderful photo book called My Beautiful Black Hair. My guest today, St. Clair Dietrich Jules, is a photojournalist, a documentary filmmaker, who decided to create this book for a really, really special reason. And she got 100 women together to talk about natural hair. And she photographed them. So it's going to be interesting to learn about how this project came together and why she wanted to celebrate natural hair. So welcome, St. Clair. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. I found out about St. Clair's book from my sister, who's a Brown alum. And the news of the book was in, I guess, a student newsletter. And she sent it to me. Do you know about this book? You should know about this book. So I was really glad to meet you after that and have you on the show and to welcome you to the show. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here. Before we start talking about your career path, let's begin with some fun questions in our For the Love of Beauty section. What was the first beauty product that you remember buying or trying? That's a good question. And I'm glad you sent me these questions ahead of time because I really had to remember what my first beauty product was. And I'm not sure I remember the very first one, but I know that I did get a lot of little lip glosses from the CVS around the corner from my house. And they were a little, well, I thought they were a little overpriced, or I guess my mom thought they were a little overpriced. So I couldn't get too many of them, but I loved going to the CVS and begging my mom to get me a new little lip gloss. (laughs) For me and my friends. What's the latest beauty product you tried? Latest beauty product. That's a good question. Fenty lipstick. My friend recently, we went out and we were out all day long and we came home at the end of the day and her lipstick was still perfect. And we said, what lipstick is that? And she said, oh, it's Fenty. And so after that, now we have like, I think five different colors. (laughs) Yeah, that makes sense. You got to find what works. And it's lovely that Rihanna had success with the line, you know, that she's hit a nerve and she's listened to her consumers and she knows what the problems are and she's solving them. Yeah, she definitely is. What's the beauty advice you live by or leave alone? It's important for us to all 
embrace our natural beauty. I think that's really at the core of my sort of belief system when it comes to beauty. And I love accessories and I think it's so fun to play around with makeup, play around with different hairstyles, but always doing so with a reverence for our natural beauty and understanding that if we do play around with makeup and things like that, it's not to get away from the skin we were born with, the hair we were born with. I think that's essential. So you like enhancement as opposed to trying to cover it up. Yeah, exactly. Enhancing the beauty that you already have. Mm -hmm. I love that. And that does dovetail with the project that you've worked on. So I'm going to ask this, and I mean beauty and photography and photojournalism. Was it a destination or a detour? It definitely felt like a detour in the beginning. So when I graduated from college, I wasn't totally sure what I wanted to do. And I graduated sort of, I was what we call a point fiver. So I graduated in December. And so I wasn't surrounded by people talking about the jobs that they were going to start right after graduation, which I think was nice because it gave me a little bit of flexibility to really think about what I wanted for myself. And I found out that my little sister, Chloe, was struggling to embrace her natural hair. She was only four years old at the time. And so really, it was because of her that I decided to get into photojournalism specifically for my project about natural hair. But it wasn't like growing up. That was something I wanted to do. <laughs> well, what was it that you were thinking that you might do? What did you major in? I mean, I know Brown is a little liberal artsy kind of find yourself school, but what were your thoughts when you were there and before you went? Before I went, my summer before my senior year of high school, I did the summer program for minorities at MIT. And then after my senior year, right after I graduated high school, I did an internship at the NIH. And so I definitely felt like I was going the STEM route. But then, I mean, like you said, Brown is very liberal artsy. And I think the humanities classes there are so fascinating that I was just sort of drawn in. I got really into social justice. I majored in French and Francophone studies. And I actually really enjoyed that. You know, in particular, the classes that focused on Francophone Africa and Francophone Caribbean. I think that there definitely is a social justice component in there as well. So that's what I studied. I decided on French and Francophone studies just because I like the classes. But even in college, I didn't really know what I was going to do afterwards. And I'm grateful that my mom, is she's a very fluid person. And so she wasn't the type of parent who was going to push me or stress me out about finding a career path. She always knew what was meant for me would find me. Well, that's wonderful. Did you take a documentary film class when you were at Brown as well? Mm-hmm. And what did that show you? I actually wasn't supposed to take that class because you had to have a prerequisite that I didn't have, but I just sort of asked the professor if I could take it anyways, and he said yes. And I did feel sort of out of my element initially just because everyone else had taken another filmmaking class and I hadn't, but I think that it is really nice to be, I think, in some cases, the most uneducated person in the room or the least experienced person in the room because you have something to learn from everybody. And that's such a privilege and an honor. And the professor was very relaxed and we could really focus our work on our documentary projects on anything we wanted. And so that was the semester 
the DACA program for undocumented youth was rescinded or where they tried to rescind it. And so I got to focus on that in my final documentary project. And that sort of helped me solidify that I want to do social justice through some sort of art. (laughs) This book is a form of social justice. It's a form of empowerment in that way. Let's talk about what came first, the photojournalism interest or the book? I would say the idea for my book came first and it came when I found out my sister was struggling to love her natural hair and she lives in a place where there aren't too many people of color, including black people. And so I wanted her to see that there was a whole community of black women who are embracing their natural hair and who look just like her. You know, I wanted her to see herself represented. And I thought that a book, something physical for her to hold and feel the beauty of these women, I thought that that would be really nice for her. So I decided I wanted to do a book. And then as I was doing the book, it wasn't until pretty far into it that I realized, oh, I guess what I'm doing is photojournalism because I'm photographing all the women and I'm interviewing them. So I think the idea for the book came first. And then I realized that I really like photojournalism and want to continue. How long was this process, the book journey? How long was the journey from the idea to publishing it, which came out September of last year, correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I started working on the book in spring 2018 and It didn't get published until September 2021. So it was a long journey. And I'm sort of glad I didn't know how long it would take when I first started the book, because I think I would have been a little discouraged. (laughs) It's like that whole ignorance is bliss thing. But when I started working on the book, I started just asking my friends, my friends who are Black women, hey, I'm doing this project. Can I interview you and photograph you for it? And then I really liked that. And I loved interviewing people and I love the photography component. And so I decided, oh, I want to expand this project and I want to maybe get up to 100 women. And so I reached out to friends of friends. My mom is a professor, so she recruited her students for the project. There's a large natural hair community on social media. So I reached out to people who I didn't know. And it was actually really beautiful that so many people came together to help me with this. Where were the people located? Were they in specific areas or did you travel around the country? Because this was pre COVID. Yeah, Yeah, pre COVID, (laughs) which was nice. So, a lot of the people were in DC, in the DMV area, in New York, in New England. I did go to the West Coast, but the vast majority of people were over here on the East Coast. And I tried to consolidate. So for example, when I went to New York, I think I interviewed maybe 30 people in the span of a few days. (laughs) Wow. Okay. And did you interview them before you decided who you were going to put in the book? Or did you put everybody in the book that you interviewed? Yeah, everybody who I interviewed. Because everybody has a unique story. And I think that was really cool to see too. And it sort of shifted my lens because now when I see people, even if I don't know them, I know that they must have an incredible story. Right. It's very true. You said you thought you were going to self-publish. When did that change? Once I sort of put together a draft of my book, I started looking for literary agents for a while. Unsuccessful. (laughs) And then I decided, ah, I'm tired of the rejection. I'm going to go the self-publishing route. And I was actually going to publish in May 2020. 
But then the pandemic hit and I realized it was much harder than I thought it would be. I didn't know how to get my book in bookstores. There was just a lot behind the scenes that I was trying really hard to do and and didn't really yeah, I guess just wasn't wasn't successful in that way. And I know a lot of booksellers prefer to only get books from traditional publishers just because it's easier. You can get it all from the same distribution site, things like that. And so I decided I'm in a way over my head and I'm going to try this whole agent thing out again. And I reached back out to an agent who had been interested, but had ultimately given me advice for things that I would need to change. So I came back to her and said, Hey, I think I've done the things you told me to do. Would you reconsider my book? And she did. And she immediately started pitching it to publishers. And I'm really grateful. So once I got an agent, the publishing process was pretty smooth from there. It's still a long lead time from the book deal to publication for me. But I felt like, okay, we're getting somewhere now. Yeah. I'm glad you did too. What were the things that people were saying when you initially tried to get an agent? Were they thinking that books on natural hair wouldn't sell or what were the excuses that you were given? Well, most of the agents I pitched to are, I would say at least half just didn't respond. And then I got a lot of responses that were sort of these generic, oh, this book just doesn't look right. And it's funny because whenever I would get those responses, I would copy their response with that agent's name and look at these online forums. And it was like those agents were sending out the exact same letter to all of the people they were rejecting. (laughs) So I didn't actually get too much, if actually any feedback from anyone except for this woman who was the one who eventually agreed to be my agent in 2020. You only need one person to say yes. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you got to kiss a lot of frogs or so to speak. You have to wade through a lot to get to that. And so people often think that writing a book is an easy feat, but there is the writing and there is the pitching. (laughs) (laughs) There is the promoting. Mm -hmm. There are the deadlines. There are lots of things that kind of make up the experience of putting together a book. And people often think it's much easier than it is. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, and like you said, with the promotion that authors are also expected to do a lot of their own promotion with support from the publishing house. But there's a lot of work leading up to the publication after the publication. So yeah. When you realized you wanted to create this book project, how did it relate to your own history with your hair? When I first heard that my sister was having issues with her hair, and she goes to a majority white school, it sort of brought me back to my own experiences. Even though my sister lives in France, I grew up in D.C., but still I had a similar experience of going to a majority white elementary school. And I wasn't bullied the way that my sister is bullied, but from a very young age, I just felt so different. And I almost resented my blackness because I felt like it was something that sort of stood in the way of me fitting in. Then, you know, that changed when I got to middle school and high school and I went to a majority black and brown middle high school here in D.C. And I did start embracing my blackness a little more, but it wasn't until I got to college that I really embraced my natural hair. And then it wasn't until I created this book that I really saw the connection between my natural hair, my curls and my ancestors. And that's a really big piece of it for me because my dad is from the Caribbean. Which island? St. Bart's. 
Okay. Yeah. So French West Indies. And he lives in France now. But you know, when I was growing up, he was in the US. But he was my only black family member in the US. Everyone else was either in the Caribbean or in Europe or in Canada. And so in a lot of ways, I realized I had been cut off from my black family. And my mom was white, but she tried really hard to make sure that I was around black people. And that's why she sent me to the middle and high school that she did. That's why she raised me in the neighborhood that she did. But I think it's different to just be around black people versus having your black family and being able to see a bit more of your lineage. And so this book and working on this book has reminded me that I'm always going to be connected to my ancestors, even if I'm not seeing these lineages every day in my own life. I know where I come from because I see my curls. That's true. And I'm glad that your mother really made that step that she put you in spaces. Some children don't have that opportunity. Their mothers or fathers or whoever's raising them don't think that they could benefit from being around people that look like them or who represent part of their heritage. And that is a critical step in forming identity. And I think that we all go through phases where we try to figure out who we are. But when you have examples around you, you can say, oh, I want to be like her. Or I don't want to be like her. (laughs) (laughs) But I love the idea that it was a process of becoming for you. It wasn't overnight. It was little by little. You saw lots of things and that this book was as much for you as it is for your sister. Yeah, which I didn't realize was going to be the case when I started. Yeah, that's a wonderful thing. I love that you took the time to put something about history in the book. Why was that important? One, because people brought it up and I always try to be true to people's stories and their own truths. And, you know, if for some of the women, their hair is historical or has something to do with history, I wanted to make sure that their truths were included in the book. But it also really did resonate with me because obviously as black people our history goes back so 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 far even if we've been cut off from it it's there and through all these years through the years of colonization white supremacy all of it our natural hair is still here like all of these centuries can't take away our roots and so i think for me it resonated because of that and then even looking at the history within the last hundred years and looking at one of the women in the book brought up the civil rights movement. She sort of associated being natural with her political views of justice for everybody. She said she went to college, I believe in the sixties. And she said that to stop straightening one's hair was an act of liberation. And so I think it's really interesting to see the natural hair movement, see how it's shifted over time. I think now there's sort of a wider range in the Black community of people who are going natural from all different sides of the political spectrum and all of that. Yes. Yeah, which is really nice to see the movement expanding. But I thought that it was interesting that there was a point in time where our hair was tied to certain political views and ideas of liberation. Right. It's very true. One of the things I love about the book is that you cover the diaspora. In talking about textured hair, you're saying it's a Black experience, but it's also a Dominican experience. It's multiracial experience. It's about textured hair as much as it is about Blackness. Why do you think that was important to make that point? I think that 
there often is division and it's not always hostile division, but I think oftentimes as, as black people, we see ourselves, oh, you're African-American or you're Afro-Mexican or you're Afro-Dominican or you're African, you know, and we sort of separate ourselves. But I do think it's really important to see ourselves as one people. We're still one diaspora, one people. And a lot of us are multiracial, you know, mixed with other things, sometimes as the result of colonization, sometimes just interracial marriages. But I do think it's important for us to all recognize these common experiences among all Black people. And also it was interesting for me too, because I've lived in the US almost my whole life. And so I have a very American perspective, but it was interesting, for example, talking to Afro-Dominicans and learning about what sentiments towards natural hair are like in the Dominican Republic. Let's talk about the way that you decided to structure the book. It's in several sections. And I love that you had sections like white spaces, mothers and daughters and liberation. We talked a little bit about liberation Tell me why it was important to include white spaces and mothers and daughters, for example. A lot of people in the book had experiences in white spaces, whether it was in the workplace or at school or sometimes even among family members. And so I think that that can be such an alienating experience, even thinking for me personally, when I was in elementary school at this majority white elementary school and just feeling very alone and very different. And then there are some people in my book who talk about being in white spaces and just facing sort of outright discrimination, being told by the head of school, you have to go home because you can't wear your hair curly or being told by your boss, you have to do your hair in a different style. You can't just let it be natural. And I think that It's important for us as Black women as a whole to validate each other's stories, to affirm each other's stories, and to let other Black women know, you know, if you've gone through a similar experience, you're not alone. Right. So giving a sense of community to the readers. Mm -hmm. Oh, I just remembered you had also said, okay, (laughs) you had said mothers and daughters too, right? Yes, I did. Okay. I realized I didn't answer that point, but a lot of the women who I interviewed had very sort of vivid memories and experiences in terms of their natural hair and their relationships with their mothers, ranging from one woman whose mom went natural to teach her daughter how to love her natural hair to a mom who forcibly placed relaxer on her daughter's scalp. And there's just this huge range of experiences. And I think it's important as we heal as a community to look at these sorts of relationships, specifically when it comes to hair, mothers and daughters, I think it's important for us to look at these experiences and see how we can heal from them, how we can grow from them, what we can learn from them. The instances where the mother's love was just so unconditional and were really pushing their daughters to love their natural hair. How can we learn from those mothers? Things like that. So that's why I wanted to include that section in the book. Do you have any favorite photos? Favorite photos. One photo that I really like is of a woman named Adam right in front of the African American History Museum here in DC. I love her pose in the photo. She's standing very tall and 
she just looks very powerful, not in a sort of superior way, but just in the sense of I'm here and this is who I am unapologetically. And I took the photo from below. So outside of the museum, there's sort of like a small ledge. And so she was standing on that and I was standing from below. And so there's this sense, I think, of added power. And then, of course, in the background, this piece of history that's so essential, I think, for Black people in America. Yeah, that is very powerful. One of the elements of the book that I thought was amazing was that you added the letters to Chloe, that the women wrote notes to Chloe to lift her up. Tell me the genesis of that. My original idea for the book was sort of a giant love letter to my sister, Chloe. She was my inspiration for the book. And when I first started the book, I didn't realize that I was going to publish it. When I very first started it, I thought it was just going to be a little small booklet or pamphlet for my sister, Chloe. And so one of the first questions that I asked in these initial interviews was, what would you say to my sister, Chloe? What advice do you have for her? What would you say to her to make her feel good about her hair? And even when I decided that I wanted to publish the book and share it with more people, I still think it was important for me to continue asking these women, and what would you say to my little sister, Chloe? Because these letters are for Chloe, but they're also for every Black girl or woman who needs that little extra motivation to love her natural hair or to realize that her natural hair is an option and that it's a beautiful option. They're letters to Chloe and by extension to all of us. And I thought that the words that people spoke to Chloe, even without knowing her, even with just seeing her picture, I was just really blown away by the amount of love that these Black women were giving to my sister. And I think that's also a testament to just how loving Black women are in general. (laughs) Yes. Now, how old is Chloe now? She's eight years old now. When the book came out, what did she think? She was really excited. So I actually showed her the final copy of the book this past summer when I saw her. We went to my dad's island. We went to St. Bart's and met up there. And she was super, super excited. She started going through the book. She was looking at the different hairstyles because some of the women have twists. Some of them have cornrows, puffs, things like that. And she went through and she was deciding what hairstyles she wanted to try She was really excited that all the women in the book knew who she was. And then one of the coolest parts was that my sister told me that she wanted me to interview her about her natural hair. And so she took my phone and she put it in front of me and she said, okay, ask me why I love my natural hair. (laughs) And so it was like, here's this community that's teaching my sister to love her hair And now my sister has actually become one of these women. And now she wants to share her hair experience and help inspire others. So sort of this going full circle. And I was really happy and really proud of my sister. That's amazing. So what did she say? (laughs) It wasn't too analytical. So I said, why do you love your hair? And she said, "Mm, because it's beautiful. (laughs) I'm sure she'll have more thoughts as she gets older. Did she take it to school for show and tell? I mean, she's too old for show and tell, but did she take it to school to show people? She did, yeah. Because when I was going to self-publish, I had printed a ton of copies. And so before the summer, I guess last year, I sent my family in France like a pack of maybe a dozen copies. And 
I saw the little video. It was so cute. And I actually have three siblings. And so they were all like, oh my gosh, we're going to take this to school and we're going to show our classmates. I thought that was really nice. And my sister said at one point, do all of these women know me? You know, she just felt very special and loved, which is nice. (laughs) I love that. What do you hope the lasting legacy is of my beautiful black hair? I want the legacy of this book to be joy, courage, and power. So I want everyone who reads this book, especially Black women, but people of all demographics, I want people to come away from this book with a stronger sense of self-love and the knowledge that they are powerful human beings who can be their authentic selves and know that their authentic selves are worthy of all the love in the world. Yes, I love that. You released this book during the pandemic. Were you able to go to bookstores or to go to gatherings and to meet and talk with women? Yeah, the book was published in September 2021 and the pandemic has never ended. But I think there was sort of a little lull in the pandemic. People were doing more things in person. And so most of the events I did, I would say they were virtual, but I did a couple in-person events. And that was really nice because I think there's something special about being in a physical space where self-love is just sort of amplified. So that was nice that we got to have a couple of those. Oh, that's great. Your mother was very intentional in terms of making sure that you were in the right environment. Did you find that there were mothers of transracial adoption or biracial families who have sought out the book also? I actually just heard a story. I don't know if you've heard of the Black Hair Experience. It's this sort of, I think they call it a selfie museum. And they have a couple locations. And one is right here in the DMV. And one of the women in the book actually works at that museum. And when I was there over the summer, I like snuck in a copy of my book and I just put it on the desk as a prop and they just left it there. (laughs) And so my, (laughs) my friend who works there said that recently there was this man, the Swedish man, who has a daughter who's black with curly hair and she's having trouble learning to love her hair. And so he took a copy or my friend gave him the copy of the book to give to his daughter. So that was nice. And I hope that it can be a resource for non-black parents of black children. Yeah, I think that we can't underestimate how this could be a learning tool and a tool of empowerment for everyone. So I think that that is great. Thank you. What do you want to do next? Are you staying in the hair space? Are you staying in the photojournalism space? Like, do you know? (laughs) (laughs) Who knows? (laughs) I do want to stay in this photojournalism space and I want to continue highlighting, I would say, marginalized communities or communities who often don't get to share their voices as much. I want to make sure that we're always creating spaces for ourselves. And so this next project that I'm working on actually is featuring the immigrant community, you know, because I'm the daughter of an immigrant. And I do have something else in the works that potentially is a continuation of this book about Black hair. So definitely sort of staying in this social justice slash self-love realm through books. And maybe I'll go back to documentary filmmaking. We'll see. Finally, in this last section of the podcast, I want to leave our listeners with some concrete steps on where to begin. So let's go into our starting five. 
that take away tips from our guests. For our last few questions, or this is the last question, but it's multi-part. We talked about how powerful images can be. For people who are listening, who may not be photojournalists or documentarians, but can use storytelling or want to tell stories visually, what are five tips you could give them to make better images? One tip I would say, um, if you're using a camera and you can sort of determine your own focal point, I always go for the eyes. So I always make sure that the eyes are in focus because I mean, like they say, the eyes tell our stories. So I think that's probably my number one tip. I love candid shots. And so oftentimes when I'm taking pictures of people, I try to keep them talking because I find that the pictures look authentic that way. So I'll just continue my conversation with them and snap away as they're talking and sort of moving and making gestures. Another tip that I have in terms of background, and this is just something that I do whenever I'm driving around DC, for example, I'm always sort of looking for cool places for cool backdrops for my photos. So it could be like a mural, it could be a beautiful cherry blossom tree, whatever it is. I'm always trying to find beautiful backgrounds, I think, to match the subjects. Another thing I would say for group photos, for taking photos of a few people at a time, and this sort of goes back to keeping people in conversation, but I really like getting people to talk to one another and just sort of be natural. And there's a photo in my book of these two women and everyone thinks that they like were best friends or sisters or knew each other. And I'm like, no, they just met five minutes ago, (laughs) but they just started talking and I started snapping. So that's another thing that I would say. And then last tip, tip number five, I would say, just make sure that people feel safe and make sure that people feel like their stories and their bodies are being sort of respected and affirmed so that people feel more powerful. So those are my tips. Let's tell the audience how they can get one of your books. Where are your books being sold? So my book is available in Targets across the country for Black History Month. Major. Thank you. (laughs) This podcast will be out in February. It'll be out next week. Perfect. That's exciting. Yeah, so listeners can get my book at Target throughout Black History Month. It's available through Amazon. It's available on the Chronicle Books website. It's available at your local bookstore. If your local bookstore doesn't have any copies, ask them to order the book. And then people can also go to my website, which is www.stclairdietrichjules.com. And I have all the links there to purchase my book online. And I will put the link in the show notes to St. Clair Dietrich Jewels so that you can just click to find out more information if the Target is sold out near you, just in case. And what about on social? Where can they follow you? I'm on Instagram at St. Clair Dietrich Jewels, just all one word. I'm on Twitter at St. Clair underscore DJ. And if people want to follow my hair pages specifically for black hair, I'm on Instagram at my beautiful black hair again just all one word and then twitter at mbbh book <laughs> definitely well we're going to put all of that in the show notes so that people know where they can follow you perfect thank you and i think it's an exciting thing it's a wonderful project there's some beautiful beautiful images what i like about them is that they're all approachable it doesn't feel like 
people are overly stylized so that they're unattainable. They feel like people you know. Was that your intent to make it like approachable? Yeah, it was. I wanted to show just the beauty of everyday Black women. I mean, a couple of women in the book do model, but for the most part, they're engineers, they're students, they're activists, they're teachers. They come from all different walks of life, from different countries. And I wanted to showcase the beauty and the range of Black women in this country. Wonderful. Well, St. Clair, I cannot thank you enough for joining me today. It has been a pleasure to learn about how this book came to be. It's like a love letter to your sister, and it's amazing. And to Black women. Thank you so much for taking the time to ask me these questions and be in conversation with me. I really do appreciate it. It's my pleasure. My pleasure. That's our show for today. If you have questions about where to start in your beauty career, drop us a line at hello at beautybizcamp.com. Remember, there are many roads to success, but each of them requires you to start. So take that step forward today. See you next time.